you're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. All right, why don't we uh, grab our Bibles now and uh, come with me to Colossians chapter 1. Uh, Colossians chapter 1. Um, this week, actually, I was chatting to my good mate, uh, Luke, who serves as one of our pastors, and he was telling me that uh, he's been going down something of a rabbit warren looking uh, at the rise of doomsday survivalists. he been looking at the rise of doomsday survivalists. For example, there's the story of Milton, uh, a biomedical engineer from the US who moved his entire life permanently into an underground bunker. Uh, He bought the bunker for $25,000 US, uh, but he said it's a steal, especially when you compare, uh, when when compared to a house that won't survive a meteor strike, right? Now, Milton, interestingly, is one of 3.7 million people in the US who are prepping on some scale, Closer to home, I was reading about Annika, who works for the ABC. She headed out to the outback and spent 10 days uh, experiencing life uh, in a bunker with a doomsday prepper. And interestingly, she believes that the rise in prepping is not owing to uh, conspiracy theories or religious preachers, but government messaging through mainstream media. Uh, Dr. Mills, professor from the University of Kent, said this, Preppers' outlooks reflect a bombardment of reporting around disasters on a daily basis. So we should pay attention to how speculation around disasters has become part of everyday life in the early 21st century. When fear drives the clicks that keep cash-starved newsrooms ticket over, anxiety is virtually built into journalism's business model. Then you have the TV series, End of Days. Has anyone caught this? You can find it on the ABC. This is Trevor. Trevor runs a convenience store, wears camo, and, fun fact, runs a dating website for survivalists who want love in a bunker. (laughs) He says, my hope is that people like me can help, so when disaster comes, there'll be enough resources to go around. Now, I could be wrong, um, but I suspect that for many of us, the idea of underground bunkers and dating sites for survivalists is a little on the edge. Uh, But the sheer rise in preppers uh, does reveal something about this world we are in, Uh, a world where more and more people are feeling 
uncertain, unsure, and indeed a little unsafe. Whether that's our experience of COVID, uh, whether that's um, the threat of bombings out of Russia, whether that's the ongoing cultural and political war, um, whether that's the threat of climate disaster, there's a sense in which we're all feeling like the world and, and maybe our own life is, is falling apart. Now, should we be concerned about that? Maybe. But it's important that you and I see this world and everything going on in this world, not through the eyes of mainstream media and uh, political spin, but through the eyes of Christ. We need to see this world through the lens of the gospel. And this is why I'm so thankful for God's word, and in particular, the text that is before us this morning. Because it's here, amidst our worry, our concern, the threat of disaster, that God lifts our eyes to Jesus and says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him... All things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. In the lead up to Christmas, we are walking through this passage verse by verse. In the opening uh, week, uh, we were reminded that God knows us uh, and that we can now know God, that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. And then last weekend, we discovered that this world has been brought into being through Jesus, that all things were created by Jesus and all things ultimately find their purpose in Jesus. We are made for Him. Today, we get to pitch our tent in verse 17 and consider this breathtaking reality that Jesus not only made this world, but He holds this world. He holds all things. And my hope today is that we would see this breathtaking reality on at least three levels. Jesus holds all things, and that is true on a cosmic level, it's true on a historical level, and it's also true on a personal level. He holds all things. Let's consider first the cosmic. Let's start there. So, one of the bold claims that we have explored throughout this series is that the world and everything in this world was created by God. Right? We are not the result of some alien experiment. Uh, we have not come from nothing. No, the witness of Scripture is that all things find their origin in Christ. Now, Francis Collins, who's one of the leading scientists uh, in the world, says this, When you look from the perspective of a scientist at the universe, it looks as if it knew we were coming. There are 15 constants. 
the gravitational constant, various constants about the strong and weak nuclear force that have precise values. If any of those constants were off by even one part in a million, or in some cases by one part in a million million, the universe could not have actually come to the point where we see it. Matter would not have been able to coalesce. There would have been no galaxy, stars, planets, or people. And here's what's really cool. In our verse today, the Bible not only claims that the world is in fact an act of God, created by Jesus and for Jesus, but that right now He is the one sustaining the universe. As that old uh, African-American spiritual song says, He's got the whole world. Where? In his hands. He's got the whole world in his hands. And this is perhaps more significant than than we realize. Um, Because throughout church history, many people, including people of faith, believed in a theory known as the clockwork universe. Right? So it's the late 13th century, and I think mid to late 13th century, uh, they invented the first mechanical clocks. Right? And, and so clockmakers had developed a way uh, to, to build and structure it uh, in such a way that it would harness its own energy so that once you wound it up, uh, the clock could tick and tock independently. Right? And this was revolutionary. This was this you know, achievement of progress and, and technology. And interestingly, people looked at the, the clock Right? And thought, this is how the universe must work. That when God made the world, He, he, he made it like a clock, right? He, he, he built the mechanics of it, He wound it up, and then He let it go so the world and everything in the world could function without Him. And you can see why people were appealed by, appealed this, uh, like this view. Because we can observe certain predictable things in nature. Gravity and the laws of motion signal God's order and God's consistency. But of course, for many, the theory of the clockwork universe created a deistic view of God that pictured Him at a distance. God became far away from humanity. God was hands-off. God was not involved in creation. He was distant. Now, is that a right understanding of God? Has He left this world to just tick and tock without His involvement? Well, the biblical answer is clearly no. Colossians 1 is showing us that Jesus not only made this world, but is actively sustaining and holding this world together. Right Now think about that. The difference between order and chaos, design and disaster, isn't found in our technology or our education. It isn't hinging on our progress. Uh, we are not managing the world in our own wisdom and strength. We are not holding up the stars. Jesus is. Consider the words of Psalm 135. I know that the Lord is great and that our Lord is above all gods. Whatever the Lord pleases, He does in heaven and on earth, in the seas and all 
the, deep, the, the deeps. He it is who makes the clouds rise at the end of the earth, who makes lightnings for the rain and brings forth the wind from its storehouses. And then what about Hebrews 1? Speaking of Jesus, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the power of his word. Isn't that a stunning vision of Jesus and the power of his word? Right? The reason the sun got out of bed today and shined across the planet is because Jesus said, rise. The reason we have water for our gardens and food to eat is because Jesus said, rain. And while there's futility and there is frustration across this planet on account of our sin, the reason the stars are not collapsing and falling on our head, the reason the waters are not engulfing the earth is because Jesus is the one who stands supreme over the winds and the waves and says, be still. Jesus is before all things. And in him, all things hold together. This is true at a cosmic level, but it's also true at a historical level as well. Take for a moment... Uh, the conveyor belt of human history and the rise of various kings, queens, and empires, right? 3,000 years before Christ, we see the rise of the Egyptian empire, this huge superpower known for their technological advance, their, their military might. Then, almost 2,000 years before Christ, history records the dominance of the Babylonian Empire, a rule that was unmatched for 400 years. Then comes the might of Rome. Uh, By the first century, the Roman Empire was the most dominant in the world, with a rule spanning 5 million square kilometers. And they were not only feared for their violence and their dominance and their control, they were deemed unstoppable. They were considered the eternal city. But as history marches towards the 5th century, a rebellion ensues, the emperor is killed, and the reign of that kingdom would never, ever recover. It's not to say that the seats of power and authority were gone. It's just that they'd been handed over to another. And so what are we to see through this? We see a historical and universal principle that despite the rule of a king, a queen, an empire or dynasty, a president or prime minister, all their days, all their rule are numbered. Kings come and kings go. Empires rise and empires fall. Political leaders, they have their time, their moment to rule. Some will seek to lead with godly intent. Others will be bent on evil. But the witness of Scripture and human history show that the authority of man, whether good or evil, will come and it will go. Now, for you and I who are on the ground, this can be perplexing. The movement of power across the earth can leave us feeling a little unsettled. 
It can make us feel that things are falling apart. We can look at the seat of power in our day and, and, and sense a little bit of chaos. Uh, just the last week, I've had a uh, a number of conversations with Christians who have felt disheartened by the recent election. Um, In part, their reasoning is, I guess, enduring wounds from their COVID experience, uh, sharing hurt over the severe uh, rules and regulations that marked our extended lockdowns. Um, There's also a sense of of frustration in uh, political opposition to the church, Now, as you know, Dan Andrews uh, claims to be Catholic, uh, and yet it seems through his words and his policies that he not only rejects the historical beliefs of the church, but wants to make life difficult for the church. I actually had a a lunch with a couple uh, last weekend who, in the midst of the election results, have now resolved to leave Australia, right? That sounds like a radical uh, response, but that's how they're feeling. And I understand that. I sympathize with that. I have no intentions myself to leave Melbourne. Uh, I love this city. Um, thankful for this city. And, and, and long, long to see a day where this city is, is flying and, and flourishing. I long to see a city that is marked by true, genuine diversity. Uh, I long to see a, a city marked by integrity and, and courage and kindness and love. But my hope in that isn't resting in any one political leader or any one political party. My hope ultimately rests in Jesus. He is the one who made this world. And he is the one who holds this world because he is before all things and in him all things hold together. He holds the stars, the planets. He holds every political leader, every king, every queen. History doesn't belong to us. It rests in the hands of God who, as Paul said, is working all things according to the counsel of his pleasing will. As Lewis once said, history is a story written by the finger of God. Does that mean we are out without responsibility? No. We play our part. We work. We strive. We struggle. We pray. We give. We make decisions and we're aware of the consequences of those decisions, right? We play a part in this story called life, but our life rests, history rests in the hands of Christ. Take, for, take a moment to consider where Jesus is right now. The Bible reveals that Jesus is not buried in a tomb Uh, Jesus is not a relic of history. The Bible reveals that Jesus is seated at the right hand of your heavenly Father in heaven. That's where he is. And we're to imagine Jesus seated at the right hand of God. And we are to know not only his infinite power and authority over all things, but his own contentment, peace and control. He is seated at the right hand of God. He is not pacing up and down 
fretting out about what is happening in this world. He is not biting his nails or running in fear. No, when you think of Jesus, you need to see him as the reigning, ruling king who is seated at the right hand of God. Let me encourage you tonight as you go to bed and place your head on your pillow to just take a moment to reflect on that image that in the midst of the chaos and confusion, that no matter what is going on in the world right now, Jesus is sovereign and supreme and he is seated at the right hand of our Father in heaven. I love this quote from Spurgeon who once said, the sovereignty of God is the pillow upon which the child of God rests his head at night, giving perfect peace. Our hope is not in this world. Our hope is in the one who holds the world. And this is true at a cosmic level. It's true at a historical level. Thirdly and finally, City on a Hill, this is true at a personal level. So throughout this series, we've um, looked at Matthew 6. Jesus says to his disciples, look at the birds in the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. And it's this stunning little moment in Scripture where Christ is inviting us to be bird watchers and to look at these birds and to see our heavenly Father's care for his creation that with one hand he holds the universe, with the other he feeds the sparrow. And yet there's more to this, isn't there? Because Jesus is, is not only wanting us to see the birds, he's wanting us to, to see our part in creation. That God not only cares for the sparrow, he provides and he sustains us. Right? So look at the rest of the context. Jesus says this. He says, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you'll eat or what you'll drink, nor about your body, what you'll put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore... Do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Seek first the kingdom of God. God is to be your highest priority. God is to be at the center. Uh, I've been following Jesus for many years now and have sought to orientate my life around uh, 
Christ and his supremacy and his sovereignty. And it's the best decision we get to make every day is following Jesus and seeking first his kingdom. But I also want you to know that following Jesus uh, doesn't mean that you have a life that is free from all worry or concern. Um, for me, uh, you know, this can be felt in, in the practical realities of life that Jesus is talking about here in Matthew 6. Um, I think I, like a lot of Melburnians and people living in Australia, sense a little concern, for example, when it comes to our economy. Right? We've seen this year uh, a rise in inflation and interest rates going through the roof. Um, my wife and I actually bought a house during COVID. Right? We know people had babies during COVID. Well, we birthed a pile of uh, debt, a whole lot of it. Right? And so you, so you read the news and you hear about inflation. You know it's completely out of your hands. You can't do anything. And it creates worry. It creates concern. I talked last week about thankfulness, and I'm incredibly thankful for our home. We love it. Uh, and I'm practicing thankfulness in my daily life. But that doesn't change the fact that once a month when the RBA meets, I get a little bit anxious. And at the same time, um, I'm trying to care for my mum. Uh, my mum's uh, not particularly old, but as I've shared before, uh, she has dementia. And, and she's just been descending at, at a rapid rate. Uh, she can barely articulate uh, what she wants, where she is or who she's with. She struggles to know which way the key is up or down when entering the door. Um, she can struggle to cook or clean, any of that kind of stuff. And so we are scrambling at a rapid rate to try and care for her and to support her and even try and find a place that she could live to have support. And yet there's these ridiculous wait lists and it's, just, it's uncertain. And so that creates worry and that creates concern. And, and I know for some of you, when you think about what's happening in the world right now, all of that might sound trivial, and I know everyone in this room has their own challenges and their own concerns, but, but worry and anxiety is, is part of our life. These are things that can keep us up at night. And so what are we to do with these things? Well, here is Jesus inviting us to entrust everything into his hands. The practical realities of our life, we are called to entrust to Him. In fact, I think it's Peter who says, cast all your anxieties onto the Lord because He, what's that word? Cares. Sovereign and supreme over everything. I mean, He holds the universe. He's powerful and He's there inviting us to cast our anxieties to him because he cares. So what this means as a Christian and what it means in your prayer life is that we say, Jesus, I want you to take my financial worry. Jesus, I want you to take the worry I have over my mom, over my children. Jesus, I want you to take my work. I want you to take my study. I want you to take my past, my present, my future. I want to take all of this and place it in your hands. Now, that's not to say that the moment you pray, this magical thing happens and all your worries just vanish. It's not to say all your financial concerns are taken away and you become a millionaire overnight. I mean, that's 
not biblical. Like the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel is no gospel at all. It's a lie. It's an idolatry. Right? We know that Christians endure hard, painful, suffering times. We know that. But by entrusting ourselves to Jesus, by entrusting the practical realities of life into the hands of Jesus, we are reminding ourselves of the biblical truth that He has got you. He holds you and he will sustain you. And so we entrust ourselves to him. He won't let you go. Um, As some of you know, I had the opportunity uh, to participate uh, in my first ever triathlon um, a month or so ago. And uh, if you're wondering if I'm going to reference this every week from now until eternity, uh, yes, I I hope to. Milk it for as much as I can. Because it was tough work. Um, it was a wild experience. I loved every minute of it. Minute of it. it was great. Uh, one of the things people often ask me was, what was the most daunting? I said the swim, because it was so far. I'd never swum that far. But actually, on the day, the most terrifying thing was a section in the ride um, called the Garmin Hill. Um, the organizers told, about, told us about this hill. It's called the Garmin Hill, which I think is Greek for Gehenna. Um, and... Uh, it's this three-kilometer ride up this steep and windy hill, right? Like, it's, you've got to really get out of your bike to really push it, to get up it, right? Um, but that's not the, the, the concerning bit, right? That's tough, but that's not the concerning thing. The difficulty, the organizer said, is, is once you get to the top, you'll keep cycling for another five kilometers, and then you'll loop back. But you don't come back the same windy way. You come back on the main freeway, and it is terrifyingly fast, right? Like it is just going to, you are going to move and it's going to be dangerous, right? So I'm preparing for this. I'm thinking about this and the day comes and I'm there. I'm up the top of the hill and I'm trying to like hold this thing together, but it is fast, like really, really fast. So I've got one eye on the road in front of me. My other eye is on the speed, Right, just to see how fast I'm going. Now, I know there's probably some professional riders, and this sounds like nothing, but for me, I'm like wetting my lycra because this is, this is tough. Right, so we get going, and I'm coming down, and it's like 30, I'm going 30 kilometers an hour, so we're really fast, and, and then it's 40 kilometers an hour, then I'm at 50, then I'm at 60, then I'm at 65 kilometers an hour on my little bike, right? Little and light. It only weighs about three and a half kilos, and that is all that separates me from a face full of asphalt, right? Rocketing down, 65 kilometers an hour. I'm about halfway there, and I know I'm halfway there because I can see the very bottom. And what's at the very bottom? An ambulance. (laughs) It's like they knew, oh, guy's coming. (laughs) Let's just get prepared. He's coming down. And then it gets worse. Because as I'm about three, kilom- uh, three quarters of the way down, probably now at about 70 kilometers an hour, do you know what happens? I get the speed wobbles, otherwise known technically as the death wobbles. Does anyone remember skateboarding as a kid? You go down a big hill and it starts to shake, right? You get kicked off it. It's something to do, they say, with the misalignment of the wheels, but I am shaking violently which is terrifying at that speed because you know if this thing bounces just one inch, it's going to throw me into the air and I'm probably landing in Tasmania. (laughs) 
Now, do you know what is instinctive in this moment as your life is literally flashing before your eyes? Grip hold of that bike as hard as you possibly can. Right? I've got to hold this thing so tight and hope I can just make it through. That's what everything in me is telling me to do. But that is not what I did. Why? Because the day before, they had this little workshop for beginner triathlete people like me. And they talked about this hill, the Garmin Hill, and it's dangerous, and there's going to be an ambulance there. And the guy says, look, it's really, really fast. And if for some rare chance you get the speed wobbles, which is really hard to manage, don't grip tighter. Everything in you is going to want to do that. Everything in you is going to want to like, grab the brakes, hold on tight for everything. Don't do it. That's the worst thing you can possibly do. The only way to possibly make it way through is actually to relax. To relax your body and even loosen your grip. To just touch it ever so lightly. Do that and you may make it through. So here I am, shaking (laughs) on this bike of death, doing 65 k's an hour, asphalt in front of me, ambulance before me, and I'm in a battle of belief. Do I lean on my own understanding? Do I grip tight and do what I think is right? Or do I trust the professional? (laughs) Well, you'd be happy to hear that I survived. I loosened my grip and made my way through. And I kid you not, when I went past the ambulance at the end, I was like, yes! I mean, raised from the dead. It felt amazing. Here's the point. Here's the point uh, I want to share with you. I have come to see that when it comes to the concerns in life, when it comes to the challenges in life, when it feels like things are shaking all around you and there's chaos in the air, uh, it's quite instinctive quite natural, actually, to try and grip harder, to take control, to put matters in your own hands, to grip tight. And we do that because we fear that we're going to lose everything. But here is Jesus lifting our eyes and calling us to relax our grip, to hold this world and the things in this world loosely. There is a place, of course, in your life for finances and hard work and study and relationships and family. All of that is important, but we don't grip them as if our life depends upon them. We don't squeeze them believing that without our hold, it's all going to come crashing down and we are going to come crashing down. No, we who are in Christ hold this world loosely because we know and trust that Jesus is holding us. He holds you. He holds your family. He holds your finances. He holds your career. He's got your past. (laughs) He has you now. And he holds your future. How many of us need to be reminded of that today? How many of us need to wake up every morning and not be consumed by the worries and concerns, but to remember We're held by Jesus. It's a glorious, glorious promise. 
And it, it's encouraging when you consider that he holds us, not just in terms of the practical realities of life, but the spiritual and eternal realities of life. Um, think for a moment about the Garden of Eden. You know, here is Adam and Eve, perfect paradise. Serpent comes on in. Uh, they swallow a lie. And in that moment, chaos ensues and, and everything's unraveling at the seams. You can see the scene crumbling before your eyes. And while we could spend much looking at the sin and the serpent, don't miss the promise. Because in the midst of the judgment that God gives to Adam and Eve and the serpent, there's a promise. And what is that promise? Well, let's bring it up. Uh, Genesis 3.15, the Lord says to the serpent, I'll put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Here lies the great promise. God is telling the serpent that a son, the son, will come into the world, a descendant, an offspring. And when he comes, the serpent will strike his heel, but he shall not prevail. The son will be victorious. The son will crush the head of the serpent. And in so doing, God will rescue his world. There is a promise here that God is not turning his back on our chaos or our mess or our disaster. He hasn't walked away. No, he stares the serpent in the eye and says, hey, I'm coming for you. I'm going to defeat you and I'm going to rescue a people for myself. That's the promise. It's known in theological terms as the, um, the, the first gospel, the first announcement that God rescues and actually, for those of you who are reading the Bible for the first time, this is how you are to read the Old Testament. The Old Testament is not just a story of historical records and temples and sacrifices and words of wisdom. and It's all those things, but the thread that unites those things is God is coming to save. That's what makes it so interesting. That's why we sit at the edge of our seat, because we're watching. How is he going to pull this off? Will he hold on? Right? So you're there with Moses. You're there with Moses before the Red Sea. God's creation is blocking him. And evil is surrounding him. And you look at this and death is all over him. You're like, will God hold on? And then you're with Daniel. And you're walking with Daniel into the lion's den. And the Babylonian empire is smothering God's people. You're wondering how on earth will they find a way out? Will God hold on? And then you're with Esther. Queen Esther. And she's battling, I think it's Haman, who's got threats to wipe out all of Israel. Seems impossible. And you wonder, will God hold on? And you're there with Nehemiah, who's trying to rebuild the city. And there's news of Sambalat with swords and venom in his eyes, and he's wanting to strike down God's people. And again, you're like, will God hold on? And then you arrive at the New Testament, and you flick the pages of Luke, 
Matthew and Mark, and you read about this offspring of Eve, the descendant, the true son of God, born, the one who came to save. And for a moment, you breathe a sigh of relief and you say his promise is being fulfilled. And yet no sooner does that come out of your lips that you see war against the son, Herod scheming around his death the walking and temptation in the wilderness, the scheming of the Pharisees, the betrayal of a friend, and then the new garden, the garden of Gethsemane. Here is Jesus, like Adam, being tested and tempted. But unlike Adam, who was shaking at the knees, Jesus stood strong. There in that garden, he, he has the cross before him. And the Bible says that he's dripping sweat of blood. And he's wrestling with concern and worry about God's will. And we wonder, will he hold on? And yet with great love and purpose, we see Jesus march towards that cross taking on our sin and shame and dying the death that we deserve to die. And then despite all expectation, this same Jesus defeats sin, Satan and death, rising to new life. And it is this Savior, this Savior who offers you life. Reconciliation with God, forgiveness of sins, purpose and meaning and a joy that no one can take. Just as God holds the world, so Jesus holds you. John 10, Jesus says, I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. In a world of uncertainty, stand Assured in the gospel of Jesus, that in Jesus, we who are living by faith have nothing to fear. For there is now nothing that can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. He has you. He holds you. He's before all things. And in him, all things hold together. That's true at a cosmic level, at a historical level, and that is true at a personal level. He has you. And if that's true, and I'm convinced it is, then might I encourage us to be a people of rest, a people of thankfulness, a people of trust and dependence. I invite the, the band up and... Um, uh, as we prepare to sing, I, I thought it'd be helpful to lead a time of reflection and prayer together. Um, God's word has gone out and he's spoken to us and I want us to respond. So why don't we stand together as God's people? And encourage you to Place out your hands in a posture of dependence and openness like this. I encourage you to close your eyes and as we just remember all that we've heard, 
Would we know that right now we dwell in the presence of God, that Jesus is our King, and that He has us, and that He holds us. As we dwell in God's presence, I want you to consider the things in your life right now that you are clinging to. Things that you know that Jesus wants you to entrust in His hand. Could be a family member, might be an issue at work, could be a practical need like paying this month's rent, could be a spiritual burden that you long to let go and give to God. Could be someone in your life who you know does not yet know Jesus. I invite you to name that in your heart right now and as an act of faith to place it before the Lord and to place it in His hands. I encourage you to ask Him in your heart and in your mind right now to help you trust Him and to remind you that He's holding you. Father, we thank you for your goodness and grace. In Christ, we see your unending love. We thank you, Lord, that you're the one who gave us Christ. And even if you did not spare your son, shall you not give us all things? We want to entrust all things to you. Help us to live by faith. Help us to rest in you. So fill us now with your spirit and your goodness and grace that we might worship you. And pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com dot com dot au